everyone, it is Stephanie Postles, the host of Up Next in Commerce. Before we get into our latest interview with another e-commerce leader, I wanted to let you know that the Up Next in Commerce podcast is now available for sponsorship for the first time ever. By partnering with us, your company will be connected to interviews with the most compelling founders, CEOs, VPs, and digital leaders in the world of commerce today. You have nothing to gain but thousands of followers and millions of impressions each and every month. Reach out to me at stephanie at mission.org to see how your business can benefit from partnering with our team at Up Next in Commerce. Welcome to Up Next in Commerce, the show that takes you to the front lines of what's happening in digital, retail, and beyond, with conversations from fast-growing startups to the Fortune 500 and everything in between. You'll get a glimpse into what's next. I'm your host, Stephanie Postles, the co-founder and CEO of mission.org, and I'll be your guide through all the trends, innovations, and hot topics in the world of commerce. Have you ever wondered what inspires that next great business opportunity? Well, it might just be those random conversations with friends when you're least expecting a great idea to emerge. That's what happened to Gabe Coyne, who's now the CEO of Styx Golf. And with more than 20 years of experience in design and development, he brings a unique perspective to creating a company that sits right in the middle ground within a golf buyer's journey, plus discusses the importance of testing and iterating before ever fully launching. What are business leaders thinking about when they aren't winning at business? Family, travel, the latest TV show? Yes, yes, and maybe. But how about quirky business opportunities or little discussed financial trends or maybe even plant medicine benefits and alternative wellness? Mission Daily is back, baby, and our flagship podcast is better than ever. Mission Daily is the podcast for the business builder, the thoughtful marketer, the team manager, the blue-collar worker looking for new ways to think about life, finances, and health. This is for the people who want to break the status quo and laugh a little or a lot along the way. Join me, Stephanie Postles, and my co-host, Albert Chow, as we address the subjects, thoughts, and trends that business leaders think about but don't often talk about. Tune into Mission Daily wherever you listen to your podcasts. See you there. Gabe, I'm excited to chat today. Thanks for joining. Thanks for having me, Stephanie. Yeah. So you're the co-founder and CEO of Styx Golf. Let's start with what is Styx Golf and what do you sell? Styx Golf. We're the golf club company for the next generation. We are affordable, high quality golf clubs for beginners to intermediate to advanced. We believe that 10% of golfers are beginners, 10% can break 90 and we're for everybody else. Got it. Okay. So I will say what's before beginners when you haven't really swung a club yet? Where do I fit? Am I your customer persona? Aspiring golfers. <laughs> yeah. I do aspire one day to do it. I feel like I'd be really good. I'm athletic. I've done many sports. How hard can it be? I just need, you know. So let me turn the interview around. What's holding you back? Actually, the price, when I looked at like getting into it, I was like, no, buying golf clubs. My partner golfs all the time. And it's just too expensive. So that actually is what helped me back, which is why this conversation is super interesting. So it's the first time I was like, maybe, maybe I'll do it now. Yeah, cool. Excited to talk about all that stuff. Yeah, same. I might not have the terminology and I might not know the lingo, but 
I'm so excited. So tell me, what got you into this world? Like, were you a big golfer before or why did you want to start a company around this? Yeah. You know, I keep catching people by surprise when they realize how not good of a golfer I am. We had one employee who came from the USGA and uh, she started working for us and we, we had a top golf event and she's like, you started a golf company and you're not good at golf? I don't get it. Because that's how most of golf works. Like, you get a lot of companies started by ex-pros and people who are fitters and highly technical, which is why the landscape looks like it does and is intimidating and somewhat repelling to a lot of people like me and maybe you, where you're like, that seems like overly technical, overly expensive, overly hyped, overly designed. Like, where's the kind of Allbirds, Harry's, Casper, like simple quality solution for a millennial that just wants to play a fun game? and doesn't take it too seriously yet and may never, where's an entry level that's not Kmart entry level, right? Like, Yeah, I want better than that. Don't put me there. Yeah. I want better than Kmart. <laughs> totally. And so we actually say, we don't want to be your first set of golf clubs. We want to be your first upgrade. We don't want to be the cheapest solution out there because we don't want to be the Kmart special. I, I always talk about uh, one of my favorite brands is Meeson Knives. Okay. I have not heard of them. No. They're incredible. My dad's actually a chef and he's scared of them because they're so sharp, but they're incredible. And if, when I have a Mise knife, I love to be in the kitchen and I'll, I'll chop and prep anything. But for many years, I had like uh, an Ikea set of knives or like a KitchenAid Costco special. And I was just like, how does anybody cut an onion the way that you see it online? Because it just, just wants to slip and it's I'm sawing at tomatoes. And like, how do people do this? Uh, which is, I think, how you feel many times when you buy a a starter set of golf clubs, you're like, how can anybody hit this thing straight when you just, you realize like, I'm actually not using something that's even decent quality. Anyways, I think I'm getting on a tangent. No, that's good. That's good. Okay. So I want to get into your background because I was reading about how you started this company and correct me if I'm wrong, but you were at, you know, venture studios and you were testing and iterating ideas really quickly to see what worked. And then I read that you also did this with sticks golf as well to see like, does this resonate with people? So I want to talk a bit about that of like, how did you go about testing this idea? And when did you know? Yeah, what did that look like? Yeah, so a little bit of background. Back in 2012, well, actually, if we go back even further, I started as a designer. I ran a design studio in Seattle for about a decade until uh, one of my clients recruited me to go co-found a startup with him, Daniel Todd. In 2012, we started Influence Mobile, which is now fourth in the world for uh, delivering high-value users to mobile app developers only behind Google, Facebook, and Twitter, right? If a mobile app developer wants to get new users, they go to Google, Facebook, Twitter, then they go to Influence Mobile wow. to get the best users. Congrats. That's awesome. Yeah. So we, so I was, you know, I went from designer, then I was the CTO technical co-founder of that company. So I wrote code for the next decade and we built that company. And then I joined the venture studio out here in Chicago called Proto Ventures, where I would work with early stage founders or what are called internal innovation groups at large enterprises. So Citibank, ADP, Exelon, Audubon, these large companies that tend to have to buy innovation, right? They struggle to innovate internally because they're a behemoth. And so they just buy companies that are innovating, right? So you had these bigger companies saying, you know, maybe we should like invest internally in trying to come up with our own stuff so we don't have to buy it at such a high price further down the road. So I would work with those groups and help them to iterate on their product ideas, do the initial launch, and then do some iteration to kind of optimize the user life cycles and the 
established product market fit and so on. So I had quite a few reps of this and at Influence Mobile, I was a software developer, which is all about agile development and like get a feature out, get data, see what's working, what's not, always be running A-B tests, try a lot of things. That's the only way to learn, right? For decades, software development was like build a massive roadmap, invest millions of dollars to launch a product and then like hope you got it right. And then software development kind of evolved to like, just get something out there and then keep learning and building as you go. And that's kind of like the new way of doing things. Yet in many other industries, you don't see that rapid iteration. You still see, which I understand because if you're going to build a million golf clubs, usually you have to kind of commit to a larger chunk up front than like, hey, listen, let's build a hundred and then let's tweak things for the next 200. It's not quite as flexible as software. But um, yeah, when we when we started Sticks, we tried to learn as much as we could and iterate as quickly as we could, which is easier when you're smaller. But it actually started as a, you ever heard of PICFU, P-I-C-K-F-U.com? I actually, yes, I have, but I don't, I don't remember what they do. Yeah, so it's cool. It's like a digital focus group. So you can basically put up two or three images and ask people which one they like better. So you can use it to validate ad campaigns, logos. You can do it for anything with an image. You can get people's feedback on. And that can be completely broad or that can be more targeted. You can target age group, gender, certain things. So we started, we, we had this thought, right? I'm out golfing with what are now my co-founders. And we were all kind of mid-30s, had been golfing a long time, probably 20 years each. And we all had super old golf gear. And we could all afford nicer golf gear, but we were looking around at each other and we we're like, why are we still using this stuff? And we were all, most of us were designers and like valued, visually appealing, high quality products, yet we're swinging like rusty 20 year old technology out on the golf course. And we're like, why? Uh, and for most of us, it was like, well, I like golf and I golf like maybe a couple of times a month. And that just doesn't justify $3,000 to buy a nice new set. And as I work my way down at all, I really just don't like the quality or aesthetics of these clubs. What I want is something in the middle, like a Harry's razor or an Allbridge shoe or a Casper mattress. I want something really well designed and functional that's at a much more accessible price point because like, I don't want to spend more on clubs than I'm going to spend on green fees in like five years. So that was kind of like the base use case. And the validation was just Okay, is there anybody, like, are we crazy? Is there a reason this doesn't exist? Does nobody want this? Have the big brands realized that, like, people go from a super cheap starter set to a $3,000 set, and that's just how it works, right? I think that there was early on, we were like, is that just what they've learned over the years? Is that just what happens? And nobody wants something in the middle, which is probably how a lot of uh, potential disruptors of the razor industry felt too. They were like, well, there's like, I can get a $1 plastic Bic razor or I can get a $35 like Gillette Fusion, you know, with six blades. Maybe they've realized that's all people want. So anyways, back to pick up you, we, we just put up a few images and we said, okay, here's your starter set at X price. Here's your essentially professional gear set at this price. And being a designer and one of my co-founders being an industrial designer, Kyle Buzzard, he put together a 3D rendering of a hypothetical, more modernized golf club image. And then I did a, a name and a logo and we put a price on it. 
and we, we put the three images up and we said, look, we're going to learn something. Either it's dead on arrival and like, no, it's, uh, you know, it's true. Nobody wants it. Or maybe it'll be overwhelmingly like everybody wants it. And what ended up happening is we, we captured 25% of that broad market. And we were like, okay, that's something. And then we went on to do additional iterations with more targeted audiences and landing pages to learn as much as we could about what people are most attracted to at a price point and a design standpoint and like the clubs they wanted in a set, if they wanted a set, if they wanted individuals. So we learned a lot before we finally launched the product. Got it. Okay. So did you, you designed all the golf clubs without knowing really if that would be what they ended up being like you and your friends yeah. designed them or you designed them? Okay. It was mostly my co-founder, Kyle Buzzard, the industrial designer. And the design he initially came up with, we never launched uh, and it was super cool. And so one of the stages of validation iteration was, okay, listen, Kyle, that looks amazing. I don't know if that will function as a golf club uh, or work. So why don't we kind of back off this like super cool hypothetical design and go with something more standard and see if that still works with some of these other factors in play, right? Price point, colors, the brand. Let's see if like, without having to like go off the deep end on engineering, can we go with something more simple and see if people still respond and people still responded to kind of the base value prop. Yeah. Oh, that's great. I think enough entrepreneurs probably don't do this and they just kind of jump right into what their idea is and design the product. Seems smart to test it out first. Did you get any feedback that you were surprised by from the people who were looking at it? I mean, the biggest surprise was that it just seemed like people loved it, right? It's like we could reach people, people were signing up, people were like, I love it, I want it. And we were like, man, this is going so well. Why don't we just turn on pre-sales? Like, why don't we turn this little validation experiment into our own little Kickstarter with very little, right? Like running a Kickstarter still requires a lot of video production and a lot of things. We're like, man, we're getting such good results. Let's just see if people will pre-order and like, we'll use that to fund the thing. And the surprise was nobody ordered. And we were like, okay, I thought people were into this. Like what happened? And it was actually at that point that we kind of paused the thing because this was like Q1 2020. Golf courses were closed. PGA Tour was closed. And we were like, okay, one, people didn't buy. So that's concerning. Two, you can't golf right now. So probably not a great time to launch this. Come into Q3 2020 when golf comes back, golf courses open back up. And golf experience, one of the largest surges it has in history. And we've been riding that wave. But that was the scary moment of like, okay, nobody bought it before. But what they were basically saying was like, this is cool. I want it, but I don't trust you. You look like you just threw up this website with a couple images and there's no YouTube reviews. There's no product reviews. There's no social media following. So we were like, okay, that makes sense. So before we launched September 1, 2020, we spent about 60 days kind of building up that digital presence and audience and community uh, and a little bit of PR to like establish ourselves somewhat so people felt more comfortable actually placing a purchase, which was still scary. Because uh, when we turned on sales September 1, 2020, we were like, nobody's ever purchased. We're kind of all in. Like we, We've ordered clubs. We've paid money. We're sitting on inventory and we know that last time we turned this on, nobody ordered. So we turn on sales September 1, 2020 uh, and what we hoped to do in 90 days, we did in two weeks. And ever since then, it's been playing catch up. There's a stereotype of the average American worker whose life goes something like this. 
go to work, come home, consume some kind of entertainment, go to sleep, lather, rinse, repeat. If you're listening to this ad, then I know that that life does not resonate with you. For the truly disruptive business leader, work doesn't stay at the office and unwinding doesn't mean watching TV at night every single night. This is why we've created Mission Daily, a podcast that discusses the trends, habits, and ideas that thoughtful business people are contemplating every day. From quirky business opportunities to interesting investment ideas to the latest research in health and exercise and alternative medicine and maybe even plant medicine. Who knows where we're going to go, but Mission Daily covers it all. We're releasing new episodes every weekday. So join me, Stephanie Postles, and my co-host, Albert Chow, as we discuss the subjects, thoughts, and trends that business leaders think about, but don't talk about. Publicly, that is. Break the status quo. Tune into Mission Daily wherever you listen to your podcasts. See you there. How did you get on the map? Like, how did you find these customers and even get awareness after you turned it on a second time? Yeah, it was the same way as before. I mean, back, man, 2020, the good old days. In some ways, my CMO was just telling me that Google and Facebook cost per acquisition has gone up by like 50% across the board on all companies. So back then we were able to, you know, reach an audience reasonably affordably. And then, you know, as you scale, you got to diversify your digital marketing channels, which we've been doing over the last two years. But like to get off the ground, going simple, simple Facebook will, will get you to a certain point. And then as you scale, you got to diversify. Yeah. So have you passed that point now where now you guys have had to Go into other channels. Oh yeah, yeah. Okay. Oh yeah. I mean, even even 2021, you had to. We kind of got through 2020 in a simple way. In 2021, when we grew by 8x, we had to quickly test, validate, iterate on all distribution channels. It was kind of the story of 2021. Everything from you know, you went from Facebook to Facebook, Google, Twitter. Then you're you're working on email and SMS and affiliates and influencers. And then in 2022, actually it wasn't 2021, we actually got into retail as well and testing omni-channel uh, and seeing the effects of that. So the more you grow, the more channels you got to open up and then you got to make sure to tune them and optimize them to work well together. Yeah. How's the retail play been for you all? Is that a channel you're going to stay in? And yeah, what's that look like? So I've had some interesting opinions on retail on this show, many of which the more seasoned executives saying like, if you're not there you're nowhere. Like if you look at these D2C companies who aren't in retail, a line item in Walmart, like just one SKU has bigger revenue numbers than, you know, some of these hot D2C companies. I've heard that a couple of times. And then of course I hear the other side that says, you know, who needs to be in retail when you have direct to consumer? So how's it been working out for you? Yeah, it's a challenge. It's a challenge to find the balance. I think it's a balance. I think with, with most people I've talked to, it is a balance. Um, depending on the product, depending on the consumer, depending on a lot of factors. I've heard companies that have said, we are primarily wholesale and we're, we want to wind it down and be D2C. Like we used wholesale to get to scale and now we need to transition that back to D2C. And then I've heard other companies who started D2C and like one retail account just changed the game for their business. For us, we started 100% D2C. We launched in Shields uh, last year. We became their number one selling SKU across all school, all store golf departments in Q1 this year. And then PGA Tour Superstore, we got into this year. Uh, we're now expanding into all stores. And so the question for us is, yeah, what's the right mix? When you started at D2C and you got to a certain scale and you're a high price point product, a lot of it comes down to where are we going to land on 
digital acquisition cost? And you know, what's the right mix? Is it a 50-50, 80-20? We are still kind of validating that piece. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like as you've been doing this, you've uncovered any secrets in the D2C world that you're like, guys, I want to tell you about this. Let me share this new method that we're doing or something that's working well for us. Or are you still kind of in the grind figuring it all out? Yeah, well, I, <laughs> or both. I'll tell you one learning, scaling fast is expensive. And so I think for any new entrepreneurs, I would say you got to weigh that cost. You got to weigh how important speed to scale is and what you're going to pay for that because scaling slow and steady is just cheaper and easier to some extent. You get people into the funnel and you convert them over time and you have their email and you're remarketing to them. But when you're trying to like grow fast and you just need to convert people quickly and that long tail funnel you're milking it, but it's going to get you 20% growth a year. It's not going to get you 200% growth a year. But I think that's been a learning. Kind of the early acquisition numbers we saw, and I heard this, right? It was like, those won't scale. <laughs> you know, Getting your first 100 customers, you may be all excited about the acquisition cost you can achieve, but those won't necessarily hold up. On the flip side, I've heard other people say, you're going to spend way more on acquisition at the beginning and you'll, you'll optimize it over time. Uh, I would say it's been kind of early adopter, low-hanging fruit at a cheap cost for us. And then over time, it's become challenging to scale and optimize and hold up the right kind of acquisition cost. What part starts breaking first? Like when did you first start feeling maybe like bulging at the seams where you're like, "Uh uh-oh, what people told me it was right? Probably six months in, right? So we launched September 1, 2020, probably six months after that. I hired my first head of growth because it was like, look, we got to try some more things. One thing isn't isn't working. We got to open up all the all the channels and test them, and then we got to you know optimize and manage those well. You can kind of nail any given channel. You can nail the mix. You can also just miss. You can miss on one. You can miss on all. There's not the same magic recipe. And you know that's probably the other learning is any part of this business. There's so much opportunity in any business. There's so much opportunity to dial in or optimize any given area and have massive gains, whether that's driving down costs with a manufacturer, getting the freight costs right, how you're packaging things, whether you're using your own warehouse or third-party logistics companies, your return policy. There's so many things. There's so many places to optimize. That's been a big learning. Okay. So what's next for Sticks Golf? Where are you guys headed? What are you most excited about over the coming? I'll do one year because anything past that's kind of hard to predict. Yeah. One year. So we're coming to the end of golf season here. October tends to be when things slow down in golf. So that would bring us to the end of 2024. And I think, you know, we're still continuing to scale fast and that's still kind of the plan for next year. So you know, I guess internally it's healthy growth. Early stage startups are just kind of like hair on fire, trying all kinds of crazy stuff. And some of it works, some of it doesn't. And then at a certain scale, you got to, you got to grow up a little bit and take some more uh, measured risks. The next year's hopefully internally going to be like more stable, get through some growing pains. And externally, uh, the hope is to reach as many golfers as we already have again, right? So do what we've done in a couple of years in one year or more to try to get more people enjoying the game of golf more because they've got access to great equipment at a, at a reasonable price. And then the brand, 
hope is that people are more attracted to golf that you know that we've got a, a live golf uh, event here in Chicago this weekend that we're going to go to and it's it's right it's golf but louder and trying to make golf feel exciting to young people and not like it's it's just everybody shh, you know somebody's golfing and it's very wear a collared shirt and khaki pants and we want golf to be for everybody and not feel intimidating and expensive and complicated but like something that is just fun to go out and play and there's not all kinds of barriers i just set up a, a simulator in my basement and it's been really fun because my my teenage sons have friends over and they all want to play golf on the simulator a lot of kids that probably were not like thinking about going out on a golf course, but there's a simulator in somebody's basement and they're super excited about hitting a golf ball. And I think there's, there's so many barriers to becoming a golfer that I'm just excited to see the game of golf evolve and see more people taking a chance and, and trying it out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's good. I, uh, I read a stat that was saying basically golf leagues were having a hard time finding younger kids to get into these leagues. Like it's not like what it used to be. And they're actually trying to drum up excitement around the sport again. So that makes sense. And that'll be good to kind of, you know, not make it so many, I mean, yes, there's a lot of rules, but maybe it doesn't have to be like you said, like so quiet and it's shirts. And I, uh, have you ever played Frisbee golf before? I haven't, but it looks like fun. Oh, okay. So I did, I did play that one time. And what we did instead was we made it an aggressive version where every time you threw it, you then sprinted to the next one. And there might've been some beverages involved, but it got like, you could push if you wanted to, you could do whatever you needed to get to your next Frisbee. And maybe we just do that with golf. I don't know. Just an idea how to make golf aggressive. Full contact golf. <laughs> yeah. Is that so much to ask? That's not, I think That's some people incredible. might want it. <laughs> maybe only a certain kind of people, but. This sounds amazing. I think uh, it'll be my first push now to be able to look into this and actually be able to get a set and not be intimidated by it. So Gabe, thanks for everything you're doing and thanks for coming on the show. Where can people learn more about you and Sticks Golf? Yeah, check us out at sticks.golf or Sticks Golf on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. We'll show up for you on Google and then we'll, we'll follow you around and, and show you ads. Uh, maybe longer than you want to see them. <laughs> awesome. Yep. It's already following me and I like it. Thank you, Gabe. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Stephanie. Hey, listeners. Thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time. Thank you for checking out another epic hour of business insights and inspiration on the Up Next in Commerce podcast. If you like what you've heard and you're interested in partnering with us to bring your brand to a growing audience of e-commerce experts, reach out to me at stephanie at mission.org to get the conversation started.